Are you looking for a new basketball shoe? If so, this is Gary Parrish here to tell you that the New Balance 2-Way V4 features the groundbreaking use of fuel cell technology with fresh foam creating the ultimate combination of rebound and cushioning. Every step feels explosive and dynamic, and the upper construction features a lightweight textile that's supportive and breathable. So whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the 2-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the 2-Way at newbalance.com. Hey there, it's Gary Parish. It's Thursday, September 30th, 2021. Welcome back to the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball Podcast, where we sometimes discuss camel fighting, dodo birds, and leaky black. Matt Norlander is here with me. And I want to start with an announcement that came from the NCAA Thursday morning, acknowledging that they are exploring the possibility of having the men's Final Four and the women's Final Four in the same city annually. So one year, maybe Indianapolis. Next year, maybe New Orleans. Another year, maybe San Antonio. Men and women competing for titles in the same city annually starting in 2027 at the earliest. Degleg, do you dig it or is this the NCAA uh, just trying too hard to make up for past transgressions? I don't know if it's trying too hard. Uh, I'm not surprised by this. There were certainly a lot of, well, not a lot, but there was, there was plenty of speculation in recent months with this gender uh, equity review that had been ongoing with the NCAA, which of course stems back to what we talked about on the podcast in the midst of uh, both NCAA tournaments earlier this year, where the women's tournament just wasn't provided nearly the same amount of like basic fundamental amenities as the men's. And so this prompted something that was long overdue. This wouldn't happen until 2027 at the earliest because of contractual obligations. Uh, a quick reminder for those that might be wondering, this upcoming Final Four will be in New Orleans for the men. The women will be in Minneapolis. And then they're in different cities through 2026, be it Dallas or, as you mentioned, Houston, San Antonio. Women are in Cleveland, Tampa Bay. They'll they'll boomerang back to Phoenix in 26. I don't know uh, if this is ultimately uh, a great thing. I think it might be worth trying. I don't know if every city could also... Uh, provide the kind of infrastructure to make this possible. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that happens at each of these Final Fours. I've never obviously attended a women's Final Four because I've covered men's college basketball. But you need the kind of arenas that, like, the women's Final Four is played in a basketball arena. It's actually, in my opinion, a thing that has up on the men's Final Four, but the men's Final Four can afford to sell tickets in football arenas, so they're never going to change that. But those those arenas are also used for other things during the men's final four that they would need to be used for the women's not to say that it can't happen or won't happen but i think there are some logistical things to work through and i think this is just unavoidable if you do this i think that's a really good way to champion the women's game you are also inevitably going to be having a situation where the men's final four will overshadow in its own city the women's Final Four as it's ongoing. Now, I do think there is the potential for the women's Final Four to get an even bigger boost by being in the same proximity, but I think there's also something to be said for having the women's Final Four in its own city with its own thing, the way it's been done, and packaging that going forward uh, even more robustly than it has been in the past. To me, that's the obvious drawback, is that you know when the women's Final Four is alone in St. Louis or alone in New Orleans or alone in San Antonio. It is the big event in that city for those days. And undeniably, you, you know, you can label them equal events if you want to, but they're not certainly not in terms of attention. And if you send both events to the same city, which again is what the NCAA is exploring, then one event is going to not completely overshadow, but but overshadow to a, a pretty you know high degree the other event. And the men's tournament is the one that will be doing the overshadowing. So I think before you try this, you need to understand that and then weigh the pros and cons of it. You might just decide, yeah, that doesn't matter to me because sure, the men's tournament will be bigger than the women's, the men's final four bigger than the women's and overshadow it to some degree, but you'll be taking the women's event to a place where all of the college media 
is at. You know, you're going to be exposing this event to a lot of people who otherwise, like you, have never seen it and never will. Now they'll be bringing it to you and people like you. So, you know, balance all that out, see what you think. Um, I guess I would say if it's logistically possible, and it certainly would be in some places, not others, I think Indianapolis could clearly handle it. If Indianapolis could handle an entire NCAA tournament last season, I, th- I think it could probably handle two Final Fours at the same time. Um, and it's not the only city that could. So if it's logistically possible in enough places to satisfy you, and you're not concerned with the Women's Final Four being overshadowed in its own city, then uh, the other stuff that comes with it, I think, is it, it can be positive. The, the most obvious one being that um, you're, you're, you're bringing the women's final four to a place where the national media has assembled and you'll expose this event to them. And then, you know, I know it doesn't happen every year, not even often, but there's going to be times when, you know, the same, same school, school has a women's team and a men's team right. in the final four at the same time. That'd be cool. And that would be, uh, that would obviously be a home run. I'll tell you this, um, personally as a media member, uh, I'd like to experience this. I'd like to see them at least try. Again, I just don't think there's a ton of cities that can legit. Because think about all the fans that be coming for the women. Because the women's final four draws. Like there will be a lot. There'll be thousands and thousands of fans that come for this. So you got to consider uh, hotel space among uh, plenty of other things there. So this, if you do this, unless the NCAA says okay, and this is something you've talked about before. Uh, we're just going to have a rotation of only three or four cities for the Final Four every year. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I just don't, I don't know if if there are certain cities that have been in the Final Four rotation that could continue being it if they do it annually. Maybe they don't do it annually. But personally, I would like to experience this because cover the Final Four. You know, cover men's Final Fours on Saturday night. Women's national championship is on Sunday. Yeah, I'd love to go and cover a women's national championship game in that city Sundays are, you know, it's, uh, it's always, it's the one day of that, of that six or seven day stretch GP where we cover the final four, where, uh, you do some media earlier in the day and then you got to wait all the way until Monday night for that title game. There's just this, there's this period of time where, yeah, we get, we get work done and we do podcasts and hell, I think this year it was all the Roy Williams stuff, but, um, there's an opening there where a lot of media, uh, that are sort of just like, you know, hanging around waiting and frankly, uh, embracing that freebie Sunday night, if you will, with no early wake up on Monday, uh, there's an opportunity there and I'd like to cover that. So I'd like to see this at least tried, but I don't know ultimately if it's something that, uh, that is a huge win everywhere. I think it's not a clear answer yet because we don't have that just yet, but they put out the release and they're, and they're going to consider it. And, uh, I'd like to see him at least try. I think they will. My guess is they will, but we won't know this. If you're looking for a timeline, this was a press release that was sent out. The 27 through 31 final four sites, so 2027 through all the way through 2031, they're going to apparently get announced at the same time next fall. We're probably a little over a year away from knowing what those cities are, but that tells you like right now, when they're in discussions with this and they'll go and do site surveys, people with the NCAA will go to these cities that are hosting for these bids. Like this decision will essentially get made behind the scenes in the next four to six months. And, uh, and if there is news on this front that comes before we, they announce the sites then I would think that'll happen in the summer. So I hope you noticed we have begun over at CBSSports.com our annual Candid Coaches series where we ask more than 100 college basketball coaches 10 different questions. Uh, we're going to get into that next. But first, The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads. You've got the H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on those dirt trails and kick up some mud. Or the third-row seating gets your whole family in to experience the thrill together. The dual wireless charging pads make sure that no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead cell phone. Think about those adventurous activities you can do. Like me, taking a ski trip up with the family, maybe going on a camping expedition, anything and everything. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. 
That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. So I hope you noticed we have started over at CBSports.com our annual Candid Coaches Series. That's where we ask more than 100 college basketball coaches 10 different questions. We offer anonymity in exchange for honesty, and more often than not, it creates, we think, we hope, some interesting content. Either way, uh, we're four questions in right now, and I do want to spend uh, just a little bit of time discussing each of them. So let's start with question number one. This one published on Monday. The question was one that we do every single year. Who will be the best player in college basketball this season? Gonzaga's Drew Timmy got 45% of the vote. He was the leading vote getter. Did the coaches get it right? Yeah, I think they got it right. Um, Do you think the coaches voted at the kind of uh, percentages that you would have expected? With, With Drew Timmy winning the way that he did was that I guess was his margin like he won it comfortably I, I don't know if you say runaway but essentially I got 45 percent the next leading vote getter was Kofi Coburn at 14 percent I mean that margin surprised me a little but did it surprise you no because I, I, I unless you're going with one of the freshmen unless you're saying I just think Chet Holmgren is going to be amazing or I don't I don't you know, I just believe Paolo Bacaro is going to be overwhelming or, you know, wait till you see Amani Bates playing up-tempo basketball. Unless you are going to go with one of the freshman stars, you, you, then I don't know how you can answer anybody other than Drew Timmy. I mean, he was the leading scorer and rebounder for a team that finished 31-1, and played the national championship game. He was the only CBS Sports first-team All-American to return to school, and he's on the preseason number one team. So, I think they got it right. If I would have asked myself that question, Drew Timmy is who I would have voted for. Where I think they might have, I was surprised Paolo didn't get more votes. Like if, if you told me, take Drew Timmy off the board. Yeah. Who now, who are you voting for? Who do you predict will be the national player of the year? I would predict Paolo Bencaro. Uh, I got a few Paolo votes and the ones I got were very impassioned. I had one... I had one head coach tell me that he believes that Paolo will be basically, and I and I, I pushed back at this coach when he made this assertion. He basically said Paolo will be just about at Zion level this year in terms of value and importance for Duke. And I said, listen, do you realize that from a like from an efficiency standpoint, Zion Williamson over a one-year sample is the most dominant college basketball player of the past thirty years? Like that's an insanely high level. He said, yes, I know what I'm saying. He can be at that Zion level as good as, even though he's a different player, as great as KD was as a one and done player, that kind of level. So what was interesting is to get a couple, I only had one coach go to the Zion comp, right? But I had a couple more say, he's going to be the guy. He's going to be the number one pick. Duke needs him to be a monster. He's going to be the best player. So I had some impassioned ones, but we didn't have a lot. Now, the reason why some of those coaches told me that is because why I was a little surprised with Timmy's 45%. What's the Chet Timmy, you know, dynamic going to be? Like Timmy's, I I would expect Timmy to expand his offensive repertoire a little bit. He's going to be a really, really, really good player. I don't even think we're necessarily breaking news here. I mean, it's quite obvious that we're going to be going with Drew Timmy for National Player of the Year in the preseason because he's the most practical pick. But if 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 Paolo doesn't go number one in next year's NBA draft, maybe it's Chet Holmgren. And and will we have a situation where they're both first team All Americans? But they're kind of just feeding off the, each other's stats a little bit there, right? And if Duke can be really good, top ten, right? And it's and it's and Paolo, the big man, is just he's he's a he's a force, dude. Like I could see that situation emerging, where it's Drew and Shad kind of just taken away from each other a little bit, but while both being really really good players on uh, a very likely number one seed. That's why I was surprised Timmy got as many votes as he did, because I also had a number of coaches tell me 
I'm going to give you Drew here, but there's this distinction to be made. Drew's going to be the best player. Chet's the most talented and probably will be more important to that team by the time they play their first NCAA tournament game, which I think is an important distinction to make. It's possible, but I, I think the Gonzaga situation with those two guys is going to be a little bit like the Gonzaga situation with Timmy and Corey Kispert last season. Like they were both, you know, all American level guys. Like we had Timmy first team, all American Corey Kispert, second team, all American, but Corey Kispert was the WCC player of the year. If I remember correctly, yes. um, just by the time we voted, it was pretty clear to us. If I remember, I don't want to speak for you, but it was, I think it was pretty clear for us that Timmy was the best player on that team. Uh, Corey Kispert had been the, the face of it for most of the season, but Timmy was, again, leading scorer, leading rebounder, most productive guy. Um, so, like, you know, why, why, why can't Gonzaga have two All-Americans again? In fact, I think, I think they, they probably will. It'll be a little bit like, you know, John, not comparing players, but like John Wall, DeMarcus Cousins were both All-Americans on the same team. Zion Williamson and R.J. Barrett. You remember R.J.? I do. Very well so, yes. Very much so, yes. Both first-team All-Americans. How could yeah, I forget? Right. Um, so I think this this can be that. But if I were then making the argument for Paolo, like he don't have that other guy on his team. I mean, he you know, he's got another projected lottery pick on his team. But and I'm not going to compare him to Zion because that is an incredibly high bar and they're very different players. But it will not surprise me if we look up on December 1st and we're going, well, who didn't think that guy was going to be the best player in college basketball? Like that will not, that is not off the table for me because he is a monster. I remember we were at USA basketball pre pandemic. Yes. And I was sitting with a blue blood staff. They were recruiting. Um, and, and one of the coaches on that staff said he could start for us right now. And this coach had a preseason top 10 team. He said he could start with us right now. And that was Paolo just finishing his sophomore year of high school getting ready to start his junior year high school. And all he's done since then is get bigger, stronger, more skilled, more versatile. Again, I would vote for Drew Timmy because that's the surest thing. But it will not shock me in any way if we look up. Remember how we looked up very early in the Zion year? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like two weeks into the season. It was like, well, that's It was the, the first night. <laughs> it was two weeks. But like the first night was insane when they mutilated Kentucky – and it was like, you know, 118, 84, whatever. We were sitting there in Indianapolis. Oh, man. That, yes. We could. That, like, yeah. if, if, if this won't surprise me if this is similar to that, where you go, okay, coming into the season, I don't even remember who we thought was the best player that, coming into that season. I don't I, I didn't oh, that's remember. That's a good question. That's a good question. I, off the top of my head, I can't. I, you know what? You know who I think it was? I want to say, no, I want to say Jalen Brunson, but that's not right. That was the year before. Do you remember who would it, who would it have been? Because because it was not Zion like heading in, going into that season as, as the surefire thing. Who was it? I think it was R.G. Barrett. At least for us, CBSSports.com. Our 2018-19 preseason national player of the year, R.J. Barrett. So not only did we not think Zion was the best player in the country heading into that, we didn't think Zion was the best player at Duke. In fact, you know, R.J. was rated higher. Cam Reddish on some sites was rated higher. Yeah. There was, there was a, a reasonable opinion heading into that season that Zion Williamson was the third best freshman on the Duke roster. But then within weeks, it was like, this is not only the best guy at Duke, this is the best guy in the country, the number one pick in the draft, and it's not close. Like, certainly by the time we got back from Maui, that was the consensus. And with Paolo, he doesn't have that type of star power on his own team. Although there is a, another freshman likely wanted on lottery pick on that team. But with Paolo, I'm bottom line it this way. If we look up in on December 1st and go, he is clearly the number one pick in the draft and clearly the best college basketball player in the country right now. And that's the way this season is going to unfold. That will not surprise me. He's, he's a special, unique um, prospect. and somebody who I think is not just going to be great prospect okay player i think he's going to be great prospect great player and be that right from the jump a couple other players i want to give a quick mention to you mentioned kofi was number two in votes uh his teammate andre Corbello, who i think will have a pretty good year as well um didn't receive any but there was a lot of love for kofi and this anticipation that in a in a 
really, really good Big Ten with a lot of really good big men, he will still be the best. Like, I had a couple of coaches bring up the fact that, like, Hunter Dickinson will be very good this season, but there's there's almost a sense that Kofi Coburn is going to separate himself within the Big Ten from every other really good player, and in doing so, will prove himself to be the best player in the country by, you know, keeping Illinois top ten in the country this season. It won't be all him, but he got a lot of love. And then Purdue, Purdue's the only team that got... uh three three players to get votes. I had one coach give me Zach Eady, the seven four dude who's expected to make a huge leap this year. And then Travion Williams was a stud last season. You may him compared with Jaden Ivy, who had a really good summer. Um a couple coaches really love Ivy. I thought that was pretty pretty interesting. Not a shock, but worth noting here that Purdue had three players receive a vote. Uh, none of them, you know, near the top, if you will, just a just a handful overall. But Three players getting votes is three players getting votes. So uh, the Big Ten will have no shortage of, of interesting players and certainly local stars. Yeah, when Drew Timmy, 45%, Kofi Coburn, 14%, Chet Holmgren, 12 Johnny Juzang, 12 I had one coach say, like, you know, maybe I'm only focusing on the NCAA tournament, but if you just watch the NCAA tournament, that was the best guy in the, in, in the, in the field. And if he carries over yeah. that to this season – then that'll be your national player of the year. But it was a, an interesting uh, list with the leading vote getter really not being much of a surprise. So question number two in our Canton Coaches series, uh, it published on Tuesday. We asked coaches, more than 100 of them, how many of your players are vaccinated? And 56% of the coaches who responded said all of them. Uh, 14% said all but one. 8% said all but two. 7% said all but three, and 15% of the coaches we communicated with said that they still have four or more unvaccinated players. Anything in those responses surprise you? Um, no, the timing's wild because we had, you know, we had scheduled this question to post on Tuesday of this week. By the way, I'm going to link all of these that we're talking about on this podcast today. They'll all be in the podcast description if you want to tap through and, and read as you listen here. Um, and then you had this Rolling Stone story come out with the NBA over the weekend, and then NBA Media Day was Monday, and then you've got these players. Uh, unfortunately, uh, like, I understand why it's happening, but, you know, Kyrie Irving, Bradley Beal, you know, Michael Porter Jr., Jonathan Isaac, getting all this attention for not having been vaccinated yet. And so this question in particular with us just happened to land at the exact time that all this stuff was making news in the NBA. And so that was uh, a bit coincidental. And and really, I was, I was impressed by having the 56%. I also think it's important to note that um, sometimes when we do this Candid Coaches series, there will be, there will be cases where we interview – you know, a head coach and an assistant on the same staff. These returns are from basically 100-plus different schools. So we didn't double count a school's votes here. And a lot of the votes we got, like we did this over the course of basically a month-plus here. So some of the votes I got were it was all but two, so to speak, GP. A coach, I was like, because the question was, as of today, because, we, you know, where are you right now? And a couple of coaches were like, I'm, I'm too shy, but I, I'm pretty sure I'm getting another one. Like, he's going to get his first shot in about a week or so. So the numbers are actually probably even better right now uh, versus when I got some of the data from three, four weeks ago. And it's also important to realize that this year, because of the bonus year, rosters aren't the same as they normally are. Like, you have 13 scholarship players in a normal year. There are some teams out there that have 16, 17 scholarship players. So... Um, there might have been a, a there. In fact, there were teams that have like 15 scholarship guys and they said we're all but one, but it's 14 out of 15 kind of deal. Right. So I didn't get one response from a coach who is fewer than eight, which is good. And one thing I didn't include in that story, I had two coaches tell me one of them told me this on the road in July. And then another one told me on the phone about three weeks ago where they were like, listen, I'm going to do everything in my power that's allowable to make the day-to-day life of my one or two players unvaccinated as discouraging as possible. They're going to have to test. One said the earliest I can possibly make them test is 7 a.m. And, and every time they have to test, they're going to have to go all the way down there, test at 7 a.m. They're not going to be able to do this and this and this. He said, it's their choice. It's their choice. But 
you know, frankly, it's it's really frustrating when we've got this locker room with so many guys that that have listened, that understand, and a couple of guys just won't even get it, and it's not even for religious reasons. So there is still some frustration with some coaches. Um, a lot of coaches said, I don't even get involved with it. Other coaches said, no, I, I, I very much talk with my players about it. I thought the returns were overall were pretty good, and I think they signal that hopefully college basketball will not have many, and I don't want to say if any, but many GP scheduling issues this year the way it did last year because I think the vaccination rates are pretty good. And uh, if they're at 56% with what we got, if we extrapolate that, I think it's reasonable to project that out of 358 programs, I'd say it'd be safe to say that close to 200 around there are fully vaccinated right now as we head into October. One thing to, to remember is that you know, there are some campuses where all students must be fully vaccinated. Like that's the case at Duke. Right. So if you ask John Shire this question, you already know what the answer is going to be. We're 100% vaccinated because you can't be a student at Duke. You can't be a student at Duke unless you're vaccinated. My oldest son is in school at Emory University. You know, he was vaccinated before he enrolled um, and would have been regardless of his campus requirements but he would not be allowed to be a student there if he were not vaccinated. So if Emory were a division one basketball program, you could, um, you know, you would know they're 100% vaccinated. So that's on some campuses, obviously not all, not even most, but, but certainly some, um, I thought the numbers were pretty encouraging. You know, when you, when you go to, when you add up, you know, 56% plus 14%, that's 70% of coaches that responded um, said we have at least everybody but one yeah, player. That's a good number. Yeah, yeah, that's a good number. It, it's certainly uh, better than our, you know, our national number. And I think it's a byproduct, really, of of one obvious thing, and that's that college basketball coaches have way more influence over their players than NBA coaches or NBA general managers even have over players like Andrew Wiggins and Kyrie Irving and Bradley Beal and Michael Porter Jr. Um, I heard a lot of of what you heard from coaches who are still struggling to get a player or two or three vaccinated, which is we will make life tough on them until they do it. Um, they will have to test and we get to pick what time they test. You know, um, I had one coach and I think he was um, hyperbolic. I don't think he meant this, but he was like, I'll test them at 4 a.m. I don't, I don't think he meant that. Yeah, I know. I know. But but like, hey, you, you don't want to get up at 315 anymore? Get dressed and, and, and walk to a building? Get vaccinated. Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise you'll be there. And um, and then we'll practice at night and make it where you, you get three hours. Of sleep. Like eventually you'll get tired of living the life you we're, we're requiring you to live as an unvaccinated student athlete. So you'll buckle and do what you should do anyway, but you'll buckle and do what everybody else is doing. Like, hey, you can't be in our locker room with us. Hey, you can't eat at this table with us. You'll be ostracized in, in a variety of ways. And I do think that is um, that's an, an, an incredible enticement. You know, that, that's why you're seeing, um, you know, a, a, a vaccine mandates at arenas right now. It's, it's, it's not strictly yeah. make sure the arena is a safe environment. It is also, you know, uh, theoretically supposed to provide an enticement for the unvaccinated to finally get vaccinated like man i don't want to get this vaccine for whatever stupid reason i have okay well do you want to go to an nba game in the city well you have to do you want to go to a college basketball game on this campus a college football game on this campus well you have to that moves some people and it won't move everybody but you know it one is better than none and so um that that is what's happening within college basketball programs right now uh, you know, coaches who are dealing with the unvaccinated are, are, are really providing enticements and, you know, on a different level punishments, you know, to try to, to get the unvaccinated to, to, to cross over to the other side. And my understanding is that it is mostly working with the biggest obstacle still being religious exceptions, because like I had a coach tell me he's got two mm-hmm. uh, Muslim you know, players on his team. And he's like, what do I do with that? Like, I can't, there's nothing I can do with that. 
And right. so they, there's no, I don't, I don't know that there's any great way to, or even good way or even a way to get around that. But with everybody else, um, this should not be an issue. And I think at most places, it's not going to be an issue. I had one coach tell me he had a player apply for a religious exemption to this and got it. And he's like, it's a complete joke. It's, you know, I know the player. The, he, he, uh, there are players that would honestly apply to this, uh, but he, he was able to get it. And I disagree with it. And I have to, I have to, I have to live with this for the rest of the season there. I do wonder... See, I haven't heard this yet. Like, for example, Wiggins, he can, they're not going to be able to play home games. If he's, if he's going to be on the Warriors and he's not getting vaccinated, he will not play home games and will not get paid. Same with Kyrie, with the Nets. I didn't have anyone bring this up at the college level, and obviously there's not going to be any players as high profile as those guys. But um, a lot of these campuses, I could easily see the situation where the same exact thing is in place. Like, if you want to go into this arena on our campus as a member of the community, period, you have to provide proof of vaccination. And if... I wouldn't be surprised to learn if there just are some programs out there that have a player or two on their roster currently unvaccinated that they are practicing in the practice facility right now because it's not an issue. But when it comes to actually time playing a home games, like they're going to have to make that kind of decision. If this same exact situation surfaced on a smaller scale in the college realm, it wouldn't surprise me to learn if that was indeed the case there. But I do think that the rates are really, really good. And I'll, I'll, cue you up here it leads into our Wednesday question in a hopefully avoiding right the forfeit situation this year because there's an important distinction to be made here right now we asked Wednesday are you for or against forfeits this season for any reason tied to COVID-19 now as we move along in this pandemic and more and more people get vaccinated uh, we are hoping to avoid another Delta variant or another Delta variant surge right but there have been rare instances here in sports, like with the Yankees, right, where vaccinated players have tested positive and prompted uh, postponements. So with that being mind, GP, what were the returns we got and what kind of responses did you get from coaches when it came to posing this question? Because as you noted in the piece, this might be the first time ever I can recall uh, the returns on one question giving us the percentage results that we actually wound up getting. So the question was, are you for or against forfeits if a team can't play because of issues tied to COVID-19 this upcoming season? Because last season, we had a lot of issues tied to COVID-19. This is pre-vaccine. And um, people did not forfeit games. Uh, there was, um, you know, you would just, game is postponed or canceled. And if you postponed it, you would try to reschedule it if it worked. Sometimes you did. Sometimes you didn't. Um, this season is obviously going to be played under different circumstances. There is nobody um, on a, in a college basketball program who could not be vaccinated right now, fully vaccinated, if they wanted to be. That simply wasn't the case last November, December, January, February, March, or April. It is the case now. So we ask coaches, like, because most leagues are going to, they say that they're going to make teams forfeit if you can't play because of COVID issues. And we asked coaches, so are you for that or against it? And it broke down 51% to 49%. 51% for forfeits, 49% against forfeits. And I'd be curious to know how your answers came back because I've had a couple of coaches ask me this, like, so who else is going to see my answers? I'm like, nobody, literally nobody. Yeah. Not even nobody. <laughs> Not, not even Nor, not even Norland. I had one coach say, "Who else is going to see my answers besides you?" I said, "Nobody, not even Norlander, nobody." He said, "Okay, oh, now I can be honest." And then he, <laughs> he hits me back with like paragraphs, right, <laughs> of uh, of of answers. So, um, yeah, I, we share the results of our questions, right. but I don't say, "Hey, this one came from Coach A, and this one came from Coach B, and this one came from Coach C." I just sort of say, "Here is." All, here are my answers. Fours are this many against this many. Here's some quotes if you want to use them. So we don't know. Like if you talk to Norlander, you're only talking to him. And if you talk to me, you're only talking but to you me. Know you know the coach, but you know the coaches I'm right. contacting, so we don't double up. Yeah, yes. We don't have to go too inside baseball, but yeah. yeah, you're right. Like you send me a list. You say, I'm going to reach out to these 60 coaches. And I say, okay, I'll find 50 more or yeah. 60 more or whatever. And so we're not bothering people and doubling up on answers. So I love on. So, the idea that there's a coach out there. Not that I'm just playing with you here, but being like, you just can't tell Norlander that I said this. Whatever you do, whatever you do, I'll tell you the truth. You cannot let him know that we talked. 
No, it was never that specific. It was like, you know, are you just going to forward my email to, you know, seven different people right. and it's got my name on it and they don't want to get involved in that. So I was like, no, I'm the only. So here's my point. My answers came back. The people who were because I don't know how you do this exactly, but the way I do it, I ask all 10 questions at the same time. You know, I'll send a text or an email and here, please just hit me back when you can. And so my the people who were for forfeits were largely coaches who also are part of programs that are 100% vaccinated. And the people who are against forfeits, those were typically coaches who are still trying to get their entire team vaccinated. So they were voting with their own interest in mind because, you know, I had multiple coaches say something along the lines of, we have worked hard to get our entire team vaccinated. And we know that, um, Breakthrough cases could theoretically lead to us having to shut down, but it probably won't. It almost certainly won't. And why should we have to reschedule a game? Because another program didn't do as well as we did getting our players vaccinated, getting their players vaccinated. Why should we have to suffer the consequences for their failing? If they can't play, that's on them. They should have got their entire team vaccinated the way we did. And, um, I, I think that's where I settle on it because, you know, as I point out in the piece, yes, it is theoretically possible that breakthrough cases could shut a 100% vaccinated program down. But it's so unlikely because the way most conferences are going to do it is if you are vaccinated, you're not tested unless you're symptomatic. And if your team's vaccinated or any, however many players are vaccinated, those players are not subject to contact tracing, even if one of their teammates or coaches test positive. So the point I make is even if you get like four breakthrough cases at the same time, it's probably just going to mean that those four players have to sit out for a period of time, but you've still got a team. You can still play. And four breakthrough cases at the same time is very, very rare. But I'm, I'm just not I'm, not, I'm I'm just trying to, even in this extreme situation, you're probably going to still be able to play. Um, you know, when I talked to coaches throughout this past season, what most of them would tell you, not all, because there were places where I know in a two week span, seven dudes tested positive. But more often than something like that, the situation was we had two guys test positive and then we contact traced nine other guys. Now we're shut down for two weeks. It was the contact tracing that killed them. Well, contact tracing is not going to be a thing for fully vaccinated teams. So the idea that you'll have to shut down as a fully vaccinated team, possible, but very, very unlikely. And those coaches were like, you know, if somebody else can't do what we did, that's on them. They can pay the consequences for it. Yeah. To be clear here, like the way I, because I've had a, I've had conversations with a number of commissioners of these leagues. This is the rule, though, as unlikely it as it is. If you are, if you have, you know, if you don't, if you can't roster enough players, doesn't matter if they're vaccinated or not, and it's tied to COVID-19, it's a forfeit, you lose, the other team wins. I'll be interested to see if we actually in, encounter this scenario, if that holds. But that is what leagues are going with, many of them, right now. Now, again, if our situation in this country changes and, and worsens, obviously they'll readdress. But that was kind of the you know, the crux of this question here. I did, I didn't have the same correlation as you. I did have a couple of guys who are not fully vaccinated with their rosters. And they're like, man, I'm so done with last year. Like it'll suck. But yes, no, I'm saying forfeits. If you can't play for any reason tied to COVID-19, yes, it's a forfeit. If it's us, we'll take the loss. If it's them, they'll take the loss. I had a number of coaches say, okay, listen, I'm all, I am 100% in on forfeits. If it's, our team or their team, and it's because of unvaccinated players. It has to happen. I don't think you're going to get hardly anyone that disagrees with this. But if you're telling me that a forfeit's on the table because of forces of nature, be like we've done what we needed to do. We got it. We got vaccinated, and now the virus has won out again. Like you got guys whose jobs are on the line in some of these cases based on wins and losses, and you're going to hold someone to a loss or a second loss or maybe a third loss because of this, then they're like, I'm not, I can't, I can't get on board with that. And that's why I think we had essentially the 50, 50, the 50, 51, 49 split, which I, maybe we had a question in the past that was a 51, 49 split. I can't remember, but maybe we did. It was, this was interesting feedback to get from these coaches 
But the biggest talking point in having these conversations was like, man, as I'm talking to you right now, you know, it was mostly like earlier this month in August, but as I'm talking to you here at the end of August, we are in such a better place (laughs) physically, mentally. Like, I never want to go back to what that was. Ever, ever, ever. And so, yeah, man, if it means a forfeit has to happen, I'm good with it. Uh, Or, you know, on the other hand with it, if it's like, no, try and figure out a no contest, try and reschedule, but forfeits should not be on the books whatsoever if it's affecting a team that is either entirely vaccinated or almost entirely vaccinated. You know what, like, if they wanted to adjust policy and say – teams with unvaccinated staff members or players are subject to forfeits programs that are 100% fully vaccinated coaches, assistants, grad, you know, students, managers, trainers, everybody in the program, the quote unquote traveling party. If, if they're 100% vaccinated, they will not be subject to forfeits. Like if you wanted to set the bar two different places, that'd be, I could, I could, I think they should, but that's not what they're doing. I know, I know, but I'm saying I'm, I'm trying to compromise here with yeah. the coach you were referencing. Yeah. I could get down with that because that would serve as another enticement to get everybody vaccinated. Hey, guys, we will we might have to forfeit a game if one of you is unvaccinated, but we're 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 clear of that if we're all vaccinated. So, like, let's get all on the same page and have a competitive advantage instead of a competitive disadvantage. Like, I could I could get down with that. I I think my larger point would be I. I understand the point that coach was making. Like you're going to make us forfeit a game because even though we're completely vaccinated because we had breakthrough cases that shut us down. I just don't think that's going to happen. I just don't think I a program is going to, yeah. I don't think a program is going to endure so many breakthrough cases at the same time that they literally can't feel the team. I don't think that's going to happen. The science suggests it's very unlikely. As multiple coach pointed out, and I agree with this too, if a variant comes along and changes the entire dynamic, then we should, we, we should, and I suspect we will revisit the whole thing. But, you know, I, if I had to vote for this, I would vote for forfeits. And, um, you know, because I, I think if you're fully vaccinated, the idea that you'll fall victim to that is very, very, very un, unlikely. And then I had some coaches say, we're done with all the rescheduling thing. Because it's not like it's as simple as a league office calls and tells you, hey, you're, you're rescheduling that game for next Tuesday. Um, you've got to get cooperation on both sides. And it was very difficult last season to get cooperation on both sides. Oh. Um I had some coaches say we felt like teams were getting yeah. COVID and using it in their yes. advantage like, to avoid like I had a hey, lot I had a lot of that parish I yeah. I had I like I'm talking like 15 16 coaches to bring up this exact point I'm glad you brought this up right and it, they would say something like okay let's let's say I'm ranked 12th in the country you know I've got a good team and we get a game postponed against a team that's going to finish next to last in our league. And we're going to try to reschedule it with them. And they keep saying, well, that doesn't work for us. Well, that doesn't work for us. Well, that doesn't work for us because they just don't want to play us and lose by 25. They'd rather just avoid that completely. And so, like, I'm not down with that. And I did have somebody in a who works in a conference office text me and say, that didn't go on as much as these guys are saying. (laughs) But but I will say this. uh, I I don't know how many Big Ten coaches you talk to. And I'm not going to reveal who I talked to. The Michigan deal in the Big Ten last year, where Michigan won the league because it had this elongated pause, and there's still like, oh sure, there's some resentment toward that university over over how that went down, and and I think some of that seeped into the discussions I had, and that that wasn't one coach. I had three Big Ten coaches independent. I didn't even probe them on it. I didn't tee them up. I didn't mention it. They independently, one directly mentioned them, and two. We're basically like there was one school in our league last year, and it was clear what they were talking about. I was like, we can speak openly here. You know, this is I'm not going to attribute these quotes. So that was also interesting to hear back from. Right. Yeah. So that was um, one of the reasons that some coaches were for forfeits. Like I don't know, I'm not interested in trying to reschedule stuff because it takes cooperation and trust, and the cooperation and trust wasn't always there last season. Some coaches, whether it's true or not, 100% believe. Uh, other programs in certain cases were trying to get over on them. Again, somebody from a conference office reached out to me after they read some of those quotes and said that didn't go on as much as those guys 
say that it went on. But at some point, um, perception's reality. If the coaches believe that some other programs were not being cooperative and were not being honest and upfront, then that's just what they believe, and they want to avoid that. I did think that there were um, two good reasons I heard if you were trying to make the case against forfeits, two that I'm sort of open to, and I say, okay, I see that point. One was, and one, one coach put it to me, the, the, the forfeits um, can really manipulate the conference standings. He said, he said, for instance, let's say I'm a middle um, – um, I'm a middle of the pack team in my league and we've got, and again, all of this is just stuff that will almost certainly would not happen, but just play along. He said, we got two games against the clear best team in our league and they got COVID problems. They got to forfeit both of those games against us. They would beat us twice, but now they got to forfeit both those games. And this then, th- then their biggest challenger just beats us twice. It's insane. I had another coach. I had another coach give this exact same reasoning. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. He said. So then, there's their biggest challenger to conference uh, t- uh, title. They play us. They beat us twice. Well, that's just flipped the standings completely. This team isn't better than that team. This this team just had this team that would have beaten us twice, just like the other team beat us twice, just lost to us twice because of COVID issues. That's not right. And I'm like, okay. Oh, he said, he said the idea that it can manipulate the standings in a in an undeniable way, and 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 help one, you know, this other team has nothing to do with our game against that team or their COVID issues, but they're benefiting from their COVID issues all the way to the level of a conference championship. So I was receptive to that. I, I thought that made some sense if you're trying to argue against. And the other one I heard was. You guys, you know, he wasn't talking about us. He was, this coach said, these coaches who are talking about just forfeit the games think these are just games. These aren't against games. These are television properties. Like you can't just be out there forfeiting games. Like the, you know, the Big Ten Network needs these games. You know, CBS Sports Network needs these games. So you, you reschedule them because they're worth money to put on TV. Like every time you quote cancel a game, and make it a forfeit, you are taking a television property worth money and lighting it on fire. We're not going to do that. And and I thought that's that's a good reason to. So the fourth question published on Thursday um, was as follows. Which program will be in a better spot five years from now? Duke or North Carolina? And 71% of the coaches who respond to us said, Duke only 29% said North Carolina and I agree with what you wrote which is I understand why Duke won if you'd have asked me in advance who do you think is going to win this one I would have predicted Duke um I don't know that I would have gone I would have thought it was going to be 71 29 to be clear I would I would vote Duke as well based on you know John Shire is is shown that recruiting is not dropping off at all Duke right now has got the number one class in 2022 and the number one class in 2023. I think the sensible answer based on what we've seen so far is probably Duke, but I didn't think 71% of people who responded would say that. I am shocked by this discrepancy. I am. Uh, Shire uh, has done a wonderful job in that staff and obviously landing um, the talent they've landed. But again, as I mentioned in the story, uh, transparency with this is important. Um, I got a majority of my votes back well before Duke got Derek Lively. Um, And at that point, what was interesting is like, I want to say like the first, I don't know, 45 or so votes I got, it was about like 57, 58% Duke. So it was Duke, but it was, it was more competitive. And then I think um, the tail end of my votes and what you got, some of these came in after they got Lively. I think that's what, caused the really the split here when duke got the number one class and it bypassed kentucky for the time being we'll see how it lands but for 22 and and these players are committing to be on the duke roster in the first year of john shire's tenure i think that was a a big part of it but to be fair and you can read the quotes in the story uh there are a lot of them um there's a there the people who voted carolina it it was interesting a lot of my duke votes were I don't know if it'll be a big, I don't know if it'll be a big separation, but I'll go Duke. The recruiting's been better. Um, it's the more popular program right now. 
I don't know if it's going to be big, but I'll, I'll just lean Duke. I got a lot of Carolina like, no, it's Carolina because that's the best job in the country. It's a more beloved school in that state. It's a, it's a big deal. You go back 70 years and it's been a better school than Duke. Uh, coach K made Duke what it is. It was a good school before he got there, but Coach K is Duke. And one coach, one veteran coach pointed out to me, it was one, it was one of my last interviews. He said, this reminds me of UCLA and John Wooden. John Wooden made UCLA, and when he left, there was a humongous void. And when Mike Krzyzewski leaves, even though he's going to be around the program, there will still be a humongous void. And filling that, I think, will ultimately, three or four years down the road, just prove to be too big of a challenge for John. Duke will probably still be good, but I like Hubert's chances more over the course of five years and in year six and year seven of maintaining a steadiness at North Carolina to have more success. So even though North Carolina only got 29% of the vote, with Hubert, uh, a lot of people thought that managing that North Carolina brand, if you will, I must have had freaking 15 coaches bring up Matt Doherty to me, man. Matt Doherty wasn't a good coach, but he was able to recruit a national championship team and have really, really awesome players there. Uh, that was compelling as well. But yeah, in the end, there's just, you know, this is f- straight from the people in the sport. And I will note, as I did in the story, like more than half the coaches we pulled on this are in the power conference structure. These are coaches that work on these recruiting trails, that play Duke, that have played Duke, that are very familiar with Mike Krzyzewski and no John Shire and no Hubert Davis. And they're saying to a 71-29 split that when we look up in 2026, even if it's a small difference, Duke's just going to be in a better spot than Carolina. I guess I would say to the idea that that Duke is like UCLA with John Wooden I'd push back on that a little bit because undeniably Duke was something coach K came along and he turned it into what I believe is the biggest brand in college basketball. And so he's the only coach who's ever done anything like this to that level at, at Duke, similar to the way John Wooden was the only coach at the time who'd ever done anything like that at UCLA. The difference is it's been this way forever (laughs) now. (laughs) Like Duke has, when you talk about Uh, a place being a one coach school, what, what, what I think of is like UMass is going to slip after John Calipari leaves or Butler's going to slip after Brad Stevens leaves. Mike Krzyzewski, Duke has been this thing basically my entire life and i'm old um john wooden was at ucla for a long time as he was building a resume that undeniably makes him the second best coach in ucla history but the truth is he didn't win his first championship until 1964 and then he was gone in 1975 so this ucla is a monster thing really lasted about a decade mike krzyzewski has had duke at the tip top of the sport for 30 years, you know, 30 yeah. years, they've been one of the biggest brands, if not the biggest brand in the sport. And so I just don't think this is the same thing. You know, after John Wooden left UCLA, there were still people who could remember when UCLA wasn't awesome. There is no young person on the planet who can remember a time when Duke wasn't awesome. There's no middle-aged person who can remember a time when Duke wasn't awesome. And so I think that if you want to argue North Carolina is is a, a bigger brand that's seen people, you know, different coaches win national championships in different decades, sure, that's all true. Um, but I think the Duke brand is, is built now. It is not just a Coach K thing. You know, um, it, it, and, and the evidence to back that up would be, the best prospects in the country are still committing to Duke, even though they're not going to play for Mike Krzyzewski. Now I will say if John proves to be incapable of doing the job at a high level, then that will, you know, some of that will start to, to wear off. But I don't, I don't buy that Duke is just a one coach school. I get that one. He's the only coach who's ever done this, but he built this thing into something that it is, it is it is what it is now. It's, it's a monster. Self-sustaining. We'll, we'll see. And I also think uh, putting this into context is important. Um, it's not like the that UNC losing out 71-29 means that UNC is suddenly going to be, you know, 
just trying to get in at, on an eight seed, nine seed, ten seed level. It was much more like I think Duke has a has a pretty healthy shot under John at like we look up in twenty twenty six and heading into that season, Duke will be the number four team in the country. Where Carolina, you know, maybe the season before makes a Sweet Sixteen run and it's the number fourteen team in the country again. Like not a huge separation, but just which the question was which program will be in a better spot five years from now, and people are leaning Duke. I would also lean Duke at this point, and I do put a lot of what Shire's been able to do in this first year for that 22 class. I don't think that is insignificant whatsoever, but this will be interesting. Uh, Hubert's got a one-year head start on him. We'll see how that goes, and you know, I'm interested to see how these, because what I lead with near the top is we just have never seen this. This is unprecedented. These are two of the three best jobs in the sport. They are having, you know... What's the third? What's the third? Kentucky. For sure. Kentucky, yeah. What are we talking about right now? Kansas Jayhawks? Nah, not gonna K- the Kentucky's Jayhawks? a better job than Kansas. Listen, Kansas fans, don't worry. You got a top five job in the sport. Carolina one, Kentucky two, Duke three is my list. Kansas has had nothing but Hall of Fame coaches. That's true. How many national championships they got? I don't count things like that. Okay. Yeah, just a small little thing on the side here. Two? <laughs> is it two? Uh, it's three. But yes. Um Two like a two in the modern era? Sure, we can roll with that. Got Larry I, Brown and and Bill Self. They got they got LB and Bill Self and uh but the point is this. Here, here's my point. Kansas has had none think about this for a second. I know. We Kansas I, had nothing but a future Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame coach on the sideline since 1983. It's crazy. Larry Brown, Roy Williams, Bill Self. Yes. The point I was making was Shashevsky, greatest coach in school history, and Roy basically is a one B to Dean Smith one A. If you you can even you can easily make the case Roy Williams is better than Dean Smith. A lot of people will not make that choice. I will. Roy Williams is the best coach in North Carolina. So you have these two uh, icons, two of the top six or seven coaches in the history of the sport, leaving these two humongous programs in a year's time, and they're handing it over to head coaches. With no experience at the head level. I find that totally fascinating, and I think it's going to be one of the more intriguing things to follow in this sport over the next five years. Okay, that's it. You can read our candid coaches at cbssports.com on the CBS Sports app. On Friday, we'll give you a little tease here to the podcast listeners. Our question ties into Texas and Oklahoma leaving the Big 12 for the SEC and how that affects college basketball. Be on the lookout for that. And there will be more questions next week, and we will touch on it on the pod then. I did want to, GP, I want to ask you something real quick as we wrap up a quick news item from this week. Belmont's going to leave the Ohio Valley after this season and join the Missouri Valley next year. Uh, They'll become an official member there. This is going to get the Valley to 11 teams I think it's wonderful for the Valley. I think there's a real chance for the conference to get back to multi-bid status on an almost every year basis. As a reminder, from 99 until 2007, the Valley averaged two bids per season. And in 2006, they actually sent four teams. I think you add a Murray State, and if you can keep, you know, the top of that conference really, really good, Loyola Chicago should be a top. Both, by the way, Belmont, Loyola Chicago, both have cases to be top 40 teams this year. Um, I think they probably need one more really, really good school like a Murray State to really get into that level. But what was your reaction to Belmont uh, being added to the Valley? And do you agree with me that adding a program of that caliber gets that conference, or at least should get that conference into a position where we're talking about two teams being deserving of being in, similar to how we had last year with Drake and Loyola? Reaction was, rest in peace to those Belmont-Murray State title games. I know, that's true. Those are so. Those are so good. It feels like that's like when we really get it popping, you know, for championship week. Yeah, that's true. And now, by the way, with with rest in peace with that, it's like practically rest in peace OVC because this conference is getting absolutely destroyed right now. But yeah, go ahead. You're not showing proper respect to Austin P right now. <laughs> Austin P also leaving the OVC to go to the A Sun. That's the this is the problem there. But you're, you're not showing proper respect to S I U Edwards. There we go. <laughs> Just on the outskirts of St. Louis, fledgling power, no doubt about it. Um, so like, you know, whatever it, 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 it certainly, obviously Belmont's a, a great program. So it, it certainly helps the Missouri Valley conference. I would stop short of saying now we got a multi-bid league because I don't know that that's true. You know how this thing is rigged against these schools. I know, but I think there's a chance 
if Belmont can continue to be as good as it's been, if the Valley can basically have three top 80 teams, you know, per the metrics, then I think you're in that conversation. Uh, because the better your league, the better chance that you'll have at, at this kind of situation, right? The number nine team in the Pac-12, the number 10 team in the Big Ten, the number 10 team in the ACC, being willing to play a top three team in one of these leagues, you know, filling in on that game, more willing to do that because the conference is better. It won't be, it, there's more value to that power conference team. You get those kind of games, I think there's a chance, but ultimately I do think if you can get Murray State into the Valley, which I'm told is not imminent, I'm told the biggest reason Murray State wasn't included in this is because the Valley's presidents want to add schools in metropolitan areas. Belmont is in Nashville when they added Loyola Chicago, speaks for itself. And Murray State, is in the middle of nowhere. You ever been to Murray State? You been there? Yeah, I might have been to Murray you, State. GP has been to Murray. I have never been. It's it's really like getting there is a pain. They have a wonderful, emphatic local fan base, and the history is incredible. But I'm told the the location um, and, and basically the demographics of where Murray State is is the thing that's preventing it. But you tell me Murray State joins the Valley and becomes Team 12, and the MVC is a 12-team league. I'm telling you that's a multi-bid league a year over year and on the level of, you know, certainly better than what the WCC is right now, especially when it's loose in BYU. Don't ever forget that last year, Loyola Chicago was awesome. I Top know. 10 Ken Palm and they got an eight seed. Drake went 26 and five overall 15 and three in their league suffered key injuries that should have been taken into account and barely got in. True. So it's just tough. You know, it's just tough. All right, Deadlay, let's get out of here. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to A.J. Walton, legend. Shouts to Larnell. A.J. Walton, 7.1 points, 3.6 assists, 3.2 rebounds per game for the Baylor Bears in 2013. You know what they call them? Still to this day, NIT champion. Okay. Beat Iowa in the title game. Shouts to Adam Woodbury, legendary eye poker. That is true. I got something. I just run around poking everybody in the eye that one. I know. I know. <laughs> we might have let a pod with that. Uh, how about this? 100% true story on my children's life. Last night, we, I think we were watching the news, my wife and I, and they were talking about how there had been like 20 species that had been declared extinct by whatever uh, environmental group uh, determines those things. And. I swear to you, unprompted. You already know where I'm going with this. Unprompted. I'm sitting on the chair. My wife's over on the couch. She goes, I think this is as close to a, a direct quote as I can give you. She goes, I remember being in elementary school and learning that the dodo bird had just gone extinct and feeling so sad. And I just <laughs> sat there for about 10 seconds and let a silence wash over our living room. And I said, babe, what did you just say? He said, I, when I was in elementary school and I learned that the dodo bird had gone, had just gone extinct. I said, just? I said, no. No, no, no. The dodo bird did not go extinct in 1990. <laughs> in fact, it is, we lost the dodo bird around the same time MDV stopped playing video. Exactly. The dodo bird was not here when everyone knew Duke was awesome. Okay. The dodo bird went extinct centuries ago. 1600s get on my level please and i was cracking up i didn't even tell her she doesn't listen to this podcast she has no idea we, t we talk about dodo birds on the podcast i didn't even let her know that this is a thing i didn't even go there but i was like don't ask me how i know this but if you're gonna talk if you're gonna talk dodo bird in my presence please don't insult the dodo bird don't do yeah no the, the, we, we we've been without dodos for a long long i've never lived in a world where dodo birds were a thing I don't. I don't know a world with dodos. How how ridiculous is that that she brought that up though? I just like tonight. You guys are gonna watch a camel fighting yeah, documentary? Yeah, exactly. She's gonna be. Like, oh, babe, you gotta come watch this here. You gotta come you over realize, and look at this. Do you realize they fight camels? Do I realize they fight camels? Oh goodness! I sometimes talk about it on a podcast about basketball. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening once again to the Ion College Basketball Podcast. In the middle of the dumbest pandemic of my life. I'm ready to get my booster, boy. I'm ready to get my booster. Such a dumb pandemic. If you're not subscribed, please go subscribe anywhere you subscribe to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts. 
We'd appreciate it while you're there. Rate it. Review it. Write nice things. We'll talk to you again soon. Till then, take care. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.